on this episode of Lawrence Talks. We are back with another COVID-related episode. This time, however, we are looking forward. Specifically, we sit down with KU philosophy professor Armin Schultz, whose work involves applying evolutionary principles and tools to economic phenomena, and vice versa. Armin joins me to discuss what evolutionary biology has to say about the future of work life and whether COVID might have any lasting effects in this social dynamic. Lawrence Talks is brought to you in part thanks to our partners at the Hall Center, College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, KU Philosophy Department, and IDRH. As always, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. Thank you for listening and enjoy. to this episode of Lawrence Talks podcast. Today, our discussion concerns the future of work life post-COVID-19 lockdowns. Uh, The Economist magazine recently released an article where readers are taken through a number of positive changes in work life following uh, white-collar jobs migrating to remote work. Uh, But do the benefits of remote life entail that these changes will be made permanent? Joining me to explore this question further is KU philosophy professor Armin Schultz. Armin, thank you for joining me today. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And to to get us started, uh, could you sort of uh, introduce or sort of uh, share with our listeners a little bit about uh, your your research generally? Absolutely. So um, I I'm in the philosophy department. I um, I consider myself a, an interdisciplinary researcher in, in some ways. Um, I, I think that's. Uh, that's, that's how I would describe what my what my work is about. I'm interested in in figuring out what you can learn by taking tools from uh, evolutionary biology specifically and applying them in the social and cognitive sciences. I'm interested in how this works and what the methodology of this is. How you could get these two or three very different sciences or subjects to stick together. And I'm also interested in in um, what the consequences are of putting things together in this way, what you actually learn by doing that. Um, I've looked at various aspects uh, of this in different ways. I tend to, most of my work sort of plays around, looks at um, decision-making specifically, particularly high-level, the sort of thinking through kind of decision-making that arguably uh, underlies a lot of what um, economists are interested in, but also some cognitive psychologists. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of interested in what you can learn by uh, looking at evolution of biology when you explore this kind of stuff. Might not at first, when people hear philosophy, that's not t- typically maybe what they sort of associate with, with, with philosophy, but I think there's actually there's sort of a long, long tradition of um, philosophical work that is very closely engaged with the cognitive and social and generally the sciences where these lines are quite blurry. Um, and, um, I'm, I'm sort of, I, I, the kind of stuff I do is part of that tradition. So that's what I would say. What are some, just sort of getting another sort of broad view of, uh, of the sort of field that you, the fields that you sort of rely on or that you, that you work on, uh, what are some of the general questions that, uh, fall within social sciences and, and the philosophy of social science uh, 
generally, just to give folks, I guess, an idea of what sort of questions are being explored by uh, philosophers of social science and social scientists generally. Great. Yeah. So there's there's a, there's a whole lot. So the philosophy of social science is a, is, is a funny field that can, can in some ways comprise pretty much anything under the sun in different ways. Uh, one one main sort of area of inquiry in philosophy of the social sciences uh, is about, uh, for example, about what the right explanatory strategy is uh, when it comes to social phenomena and whether explanation even is the right way to think about what we do in the social sciences to begin with. Um, uh, there is a certain view that sees the social sciences as much more like a humanities discipline where we're trying to place certain social phenomena in a wider intellectual or historical context um, and try to sort of interpret the kind of the, the kind of motivations that people uh, that the relevant actors might might have in that in that kind of phenomenon you you in that in that kind of view you could think about applying toolkits from say um, sort of um, narrative theory or um, sort of English literature to, to the, the study of social phenomena. There's a very different alternative view um, where you say, no, the social uh, social phenomena are phenomena, uh, complex phenomena, like in many other sciences, and we should apply the kind of toolkits that we have in, in other sciences when we when we study these kind of phenomena. We, um, we try to maybe run an experiment. Some of these experiments are tricky to do um, in the lab situation when it comes to humans, but there might be ways around that in different ways. We might rely on other kinds of data sources. Um, we put forward hypotheses or theories about what principles govern the social phenomena we're interested in. We test those theories and hypotheses. Um, and it's, it's the, the project is much closer to a sci natural scientific project. And uh, so, so one, one big debate in philosophy of social science is, is which of these two projects um, works well, or maybe which, which works better, or which works better for which contexts. Uh, that, that sort of stuff. And um, so maybe relatively obviously, much of my work tries to look at it in that second perspective and try to say, hey, here's a, here's a kind of social phenomenon and we're, we're trying to understand it. Um, let's, um, for example, um, something I've been looking at recently concerns um, economic decision-making, they're humans and they sort of have to make decisions about whether to invest in the stock market or whether to buy treasury bonds or whether to to just hold cash or, or something. So you have all of these different alternatives which you can do with your money. Um, which one are you going to do? And, and uh, you're looking at the interest rate and there, there are all these variables that people go in uh, might, might go into people's decisions. So what, what's actually, how, what kind of principles govern decision-making when it comes to, comes to this kind of problem. And um, you could sort of say, well, that's, you know, uh, interesting and historically and you can try to tell some story about what's going on here or you could say no that's a, there's a you can put forward a theory there's certain principles that govern people's decisions and we're, we're trying to get at those principles what i'm interested in is to say can evolutionary biology or tools from biology help us get clearer on these principles one place you might look is for example at decision making in non-human animals non-human animals don't decide whether to invest in the stock market or whether to hold cash or to, you know, buy treasury bonds. However, they have, uh, they can do different things with, for example, food sources. They have might be extra food that they have. Do you want to consume this now? Do you want to save it? If you want to save it, where's a good place to save it? Do you drag it up a tree? Do you 
bury it. Um, if you bury it, it might stay longer, but then you have to remember where you put it. Someone else might find it. Um, lots of variables going. Uh, people have studied that kind of question, and I'm wondering, can we, can we take what we learned about non-human animal decision-making and apply it in the human case? And if we can, how, how do we do it and what do we learn? And, and besides, because uh, you, you discuss uh, economics, economic decision-making here a little bit, um, are there other sort of uh, questions in the social sciences that you think uh, evolutionary biology and the insights of evolutionary biology is, is well-equipped in sort of applying and, and sort of answering some of these questions? Oh, yeah. I think there, there, there are actually quite a few more or less related uh, phenomena. Um, so I have, a, I, have a, I tend to circle back a little bit to economics. Um, and um, it, when it comes to the social sciences, that's just a little bit my, my background. That's what, where I sort of know, feel, feel most comfortable in. Um, um, but there are sort of other things. Uh, one, one thing that I'm, uh, I've looked at concerns, for example, this question of the, the right kind of level at which you want to, where you want to localize social phenomena. When you think about a social phenomenon, um, um, say that of a, um, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, a firm where you ha or a corporation, um, which is a bunch of people that are producing something. And um, uh, when you think about what corporations like, I don't know, Apple or something, the decisions that Apple makes, um, do you need to think about Apple as a thing of its own? Is Apple a thing or is it all that we have? It's just individual people, um, a CEO and their shareholders and their bunch of employees and engineers. And there's, there's a, uh, you know, there's, all sorts of individual little actions that go together. And you want to understand what Apple does. Well, you got to understand what all these individual little people do. And then once you sort of keep track of the individual people, that's all there is to say about Apple. Or is it that, no, 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 there is all what the individual people do, but then you have to still talk about sort of Apple on its own. Like the, the corporation stands a little bit apart from the bits that make, make it up. Like the, the sum is, is bigger than the, than, the whole is more than the sum of its parts, um, as it were. And um, so that's a traditional question in the social sciences too, where I think you can actually take some tools from, from evolutionary biology and think about that too, because there actually turns out there are somewhat similar questions in biology that people have been grappling with in that context, um, quite independently of what social scientists have been doing. So if you try to make sense of how certain um, groups of animals, how they interact, can you just say, okay, I've, I've got... I've got a um, what I've got a um, a, a herd of, of zebras here, and and there's a bunch of zebras, and I just look at what the zebras are doing, and then I, I can explain all there is to the herd of zebras. That's all there is to say about the herd of zebras, or is there something to the to the herd that's sort of separate from the individual zebras? And under which circumstance is that the case? When is that not the case? That turns out to be a really interesting question because um, lots of biological things are sort of built up of, out of other things. So multicellular organisms like humans were made up of lots of little cells. Um, and then there are single-celled organisms. And we know that life started single-celled. So lots of initially everything was single-celled and then single cells kind of came together. And at some point, all these single cells that hung around together and cooperated made up a new thing, a multicellular organism. But what happened? What's the step from the individual single cells that cooperate to this new thing, the, the organism, the multicellular organism, what, what happened there? Um, and so biologists have been studying this and I'm sort of thinking, hey, 
maybe we can take some of these insights, that kind of stuff, and, and see what we can, what kind of mileage we can get out of that in, in the social sciences, for example. Is is one sort of, um, and this is just, this might, this might be wrong, but it, it seems like maybe one uh, motivation for maybe separating those, those two um, general parts, the, this, the individual parts for versus the, I guess, the greater whole of the, of the corporation is that maybe there's at the level of the, of the general firm or the agency, maybe we might ascribe a certain intention like maximizing profit versus the individual parts. There's different intentions or like they're, they're wanting to do well at their job or they're wanting to, they're working on specific uh, goals in mind that may eventually uh, help with maximizing profit, but the greater level, there's a different sort of uh, purpose or intention that we might ascribe to them. Generally, is that one motivation for separate? Yeah, that, that's a great thing. Um, and um, now, two things, two things that are sort of worthwhile thinking about here. The, the first is <laughs> you sort of say, well, look, individual people might, like, I just, I, I just kind of do my job. Um, I don't really think about maximizing. I, I work for Apple, but I don't think about like, maximizing Apple's profits. That's just not how I think about what I do. And maybe that's true for everyone at Apple, but somehow Apple ends up maximizing profits. So how is that, how is that possible? Um, and that, that's an interesting question. And one sort of the one traditional sort of concern or point of debate here is that where is the, where is the collective corporate intention coming from if it's not coming from the individual people? It sounds like magic. I don't want something. You don't want something. None of us want anything. And somehow magically, Collectively, we want something different from how is this possible? So there's been philosophers and social scientists have been thinking about that and how this might work. And so uh, that's 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 the point, I think, where you can sort of say, well, what have we learned in biology about how similar phenomena um, work when individual cells just kind of want to do their thing, but at some point they become a multicellular organism? What 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 holds the multicellular organism together? How does this, why isn't this falling apart? You know, why isn't your intentions as to what to do with your job and my intentions with what to do with my job? Why doesn't that lead to Apple just collapsing in and of itself? Because nobody, how, how do we maintain that kind of internal coordination? That's, uh, so that's another thing. Um, absolutely. Um, a, a related point is, and you've mentioned this, is that it's a traditional one way in which uh, social scientists have often thought about social phenomena is in terms of sort of trying to analyze their function, what they're for. So um, what's the, you know, uh, there's a certain social institution and people might have all sorts of views about what the institution is for, but maybe they're, they're wrong. Maybe there's a sort of, there's a, there's a separate fact of the matter about what the institution is for that, that we don't even really know about. There's sort of classic stuff in the history of the social sciences from Marx onwards that has, you know, um, and views about, uh, about that. And but various anthropologists and social scientists have, have purported to explain various social phenomena with this sort of functionalist bent. And the a traditional concern with that is that where's what gr- related really is what grounds the function of these things. So if you say to use a classic example, um, uh, there is um, you might look at a certain kind of uh, population, and they might engage in ritualistic pig slaughter once a year. They um, they or they let their pigs sort of roam in, in various gardens, and once a year they they kill a certain number of the pigs, and there's a big feast associated with that, um, uh, and that's great. Um, is that all there is to say about it? Well, some people have suggested in sort of classic 
analyses of this, various anthropologists have suggested, well, maybe there's a reason why you engage in this ritualistic pig slaughter, which has to do with agricultural, sort of the managing of the, the you know, if you kill the pigs too soon, you don't... Um, uh, uh, you don't get the benefit of them sort of moving the soil about and, and allowing you to grow better produce. If you let the pigs mess up the soil too much, that's not great for the soil. You also kind of want to get at the protein from the pig meat. Um, but if you eat all the pigs, you don't have any more pigs, you have to sort of manage this. And if you have sort of once a year pig slaughter festival, you sort of manage all the different, these different variables. That's really great. Um, but the question is, who, who gets to say what the function is of ritualistic pig slaughter? Who is, do I get to say this? Is this some anthropologist writes a book and that, that's therefore the truth? How does this work? Well, one view is uh, the function of something uh, is grounded in the kind of history that, the, that this relevant institution had, much like the function of a heart is grounded in the history that hearts have. My heart has the function to pump blood. It doesn't have the function to make a certain thump thump sound, even though it doesn't make that sound, but that's not what it's for. What it's for is to pump blood. And the reason for that is that hearts that didn't make the thump thump sound, but still pump blood, um, did just as well, we might surmise, as the hearts that uh, made the thump thump sound uh, and pump blood. Uh, but hearts that didn't pump blood but made the thump thump sound, they didn't do great. People had those hearts, they died out pretty quickly. Um, so the hearts that pumped blood were selected, but the hearts that made a sound were not selected. And so given this, pumping blood is what hearts are for. Now you might think, oh, great, we apply the same reasoning to the case of the social sciences um, ritualistic pig slaughter. But unfortunately, if you go back in time, you don't find this kind of selective history typically. So um, there seems to be this kind of disanalogy between the biological case and the, and the social scientific case. You have, you know, you might sort of say there are lots of organisms, there are lots of variants that have been tried out, some make it, some don't, but you don't typically find these social institutions being tried out in lots of different variants over time. And uh, we, we, you just don't find that. Um, and so, um, um, a number of people moved away and said, you know, maybe functionalism in the social sciences isn't so good. Um, I actually think that there's much more mileage you can get out of this, but you have to kind of change a little bit the lessons you take from biology. And you have to kind of think about the biological cases slightly differently and think about how you could reapply the biology in the social sciences to get, um, to get to a better conclusion here. Gotcha. And so, Getting to the, the the question at hand, I think a lot of people, I think like a lot of people, I, at the very beginning of when these lockdowns started, I was sort of obviously very concerned about what was going on. But at the same time, there was some part of me that uh, this sort of technological nerd of me that was sort of excited about uh, the the possibilities that, that might be brought about uh, in terms of work life, in terms of teaching teaching online and all these sort of things that might be produced in response to people moving to working from home, moving uh, to have meeting more virtually. And there, there were some, you know, at, again, this is at the beginning, there is this sort of impulse that I had or, or sort of thinking I had, I think I, like many people were, were expecting this might bring about a, a, a change in our sort of work life habits but we might be wrong. Is that right? And this is something that I think that the economist, I mean, uh, 
kind of brings us up the sort of changes that might be brought about these lockdowns. I think that's so exactly. So, um, I know I don't, I wouldn't, so I don't want to say, Oh, that's, that's all wrong. I think there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of truces. And, um, um, I think you're, you're exactly right to say, uh, without a doubt, um, in there are potentials in, uh, in this kind of shift that the, that the pandemic has brought about in how people work and engage with each other socially. And some of this was sort of happening already and the pandemic just kind of pushed that door wide open. And other things people were sort of forced to change and realize certain things kind of worked out in ways that they didn't expect it to work. Um, and so some, I think for sure, there's, there's some of this is gonna stay uh, and it might make things better in, in, in lots of ways. Um, I think that's, that's quite plausible. Um, what I think is important, however, to remember, and this is, again, coming from, from this kind of background, from thinking about humans not as strange outliers in the universe about, the, the, you know, none of the, the same laws that apply to everything else apply to humans. No. If humans are biological systems uh, that are part of biology, just like all sorts of other animals, then it becomes useful to think a bit about the kind of, the kind of biological systems that humans are. And one thing that is easy, everyone sort of agrees with that, is that humans are social. Uh, we, we, need, we talk to each other, we com communicate all the time. That's, that's sort of easy to remember. Um, but what's easy to forget and, and overlook, I think, is, the, kind, is the, the, the particular sociality that you see in humans. So um, lots of animals are social um, uh, and maybe arguably way more social than humans. Um, but humans are and have been from their earliest days social in an interesting way. We are not, we live in groups and we depend on each other to do pretty much anything, but we do so uh, by living in groups that are not just composed of kin. We're not just talking to and hanging around people that are genetically pretty much similar to us or are closely aligned with us genetically or biologically otherwise. We are communicating and cooperating with people whose interests, biological interests, aren't fully aligned with ours at all times. We also, for various interesting reasons, um, are able to achieve quite complex things together if we put our minds to it. We can, we can build tools and we can, I can use the tool that you build to build a more complex tool that I can give back to you. You can build a more complex tool and we can use those tools to build further tools, which enable, you know, then we can, more food um, down the road, but there might be lots of steps in between. We can do all of this, um, but to do it, we need to we need to coordinate and cooperate. And we can't rely on the fact that we um, that we always going to look and see eye to eye about what the best way forward is. So the, to, to get around this, we have to we we've evolved psychological capacities that are really focused on making sense of what other people are thinking. I'm trying to figure out what's in your head. What are you, what, what is it that you want? What incentives do you have? What is it? What do you think about this? What you feel right now? What you feel yesterday? How, what do you think about me? What do you think about these other people? What, where do you see yourself falling in the social hierarchy? Where do you want to go? Where do I fall in the social hierarchy? What's going on? So we think about this a lot. 
Um, but it's tricky to figure out what you think and feel because I, you know, in your inner lives just don't match up beautifully and directly to your outer lives. Um, I, uh, you know, I, you, uh, you might think and feel all sorts of things and then you might say all sorts of other things and you might act in all sorts of ways. Um, and the way you talk and the way you act might not match directly it's not it's not obvious how how what you say and how you act how that relates to what you think and feel and what you want um so how do i know what you want and what you think and feel well we humans we've evolved sort of tools that enable us to uh, infer uh, what other people think and that relies a lot on um, judging people's facial expressions and keeping track of, of uh, we're very, we have a good, very good personal memory. We're really good at sort of remembering faces and we're good at tracking how sort of, how did they look at this other person yesterday? And I can sort of remember that really easily. Um, uh, I can I'm sort of can really hone in on like small differences in how your pupils move and your eyebrows went up there and, and, and things like this. And you can communicate a whole lot with these little things. Um, and that's really great. Um, here's where, here's where this all ties to sort of working from home. Um, is that look, if think about how different forms of communication work with, with that kind of evolved biological psychological heritage about coordination and cooperation. Um, if, if we just had letters, right. If we just had email or letters, I could tell you what I think and I could maybe italicize some things to get some emphasis on some bits. But you might always think like, yeah, yeah, that guy just said that. It's easy to write this. What did, Do they actually think that? I don't know. I didn't like, I, maybe they were grimacing as they were writing. It felt so wrong. They were grimacing as they were writing. You don't know. So we can avoid some of this if we have like audio communication. If we talk over the phone, uh, you, my voice changes and you can use some of that information to react to some of the stuff so that's good that's better um there's still the sense you don't see my face so you don't quite know exactly what's going on and um, so you might think if we just go to zoom we add some face that's going to really make a difference now the face is going to add some interesting data because um, now you can see my facial expression that's going to be helpful to you but here's one variable that's still missing and this is where this homework thing comes in we're not in the same environment so that's tricky now because now let's say you see my face and we're having this Zoom call and it's going great and I start to kind of look anxious or worried or kind of annoyed. Now, it could be that I'm annoyed because of the thing you just said kind of was really annoying me and I, I found it really quite annoying. It could be that there's a strange draft coming in through the window. It could also be that there's a strange noise in the background and I'd like to, I have to really concentrate to hear what you say and I'd like to stop the noise but I'm like wearing like a suit on the top and pajama pants on the bottom and I feel kind of awkward getting up and closing the door and so that's, that's a little tricky so I'm not going to do that and so that all goes in my mind um, and leads me to display this kind of face of annoyance but you're not in the same physical environment so you can't distinguish those possibilities so all you got is a face you recognize that I'm annoyed but you don't know why I'm annoyed because you're not in the same physical space that I am we're not jointly navigating the same physical environment. 
because of that, there's there's a lot of extra variables that makes it really hard for you to to read my emotions, and that makes it a lot harder to coordinate and cooperate. We can do it over Zoom, but it becomes stilted. It becomes a little difficult. You have to sort of become very explicit, like, I'm feeling sad now. Sorry, there is a draft coming through the window. It changes the nature of the conversation. It changes the way we communicate. And it makes this, it makes the exchange of ideas that the kind of cooperation, uh, human cooperation often relies on, makes it a lot harder. And, um, I think that's that's sort of one of the that that's sort of at the crux of why I think ultimately people will want to go back and being in the same physical space and interacting, um, because being in the same physical space makes it a lot easier to figure out what we're thinking and what we want and and where we're going and to come up with new ideas to to build new things and react to the kind of things that other people are building and, and communicate is a lot easier um, to do that when you're in the same physical environment because it, it, it helps me figure out what you're thinking. And I don't have to guesstimate all the time whether you're mad or sad or bored. Or, um, so and that's, in, in, in a nutshell, I think that's where, where why I think there, the idea that will forever from now on offices are dead i think that's not that's not true i think people will want to work in the same physical environment um some of the time at least not not every day i think people don't want to go back and having the flexibility to work from home sometime and for some tasks absolutely i think home working stays and gives us all of these things and some of the stuff we do is works really great over email over zoom it's just then some of the stuff we we want to be in the same physical space should also note, look, technology, I, I mean, you can, science fiction, we can soon, and Star Wars has this with the hollow rooms and Star Wars, the Star Trek, I forgot. So where you, you know, you can, soon we can sort of make hologram, holographic images of each other and sort of send these into the same space and we can sort of be virtually in the same space or something. Sure, I can imagine that in the future technology gets us around some of these problems, but that's far off. I mean, right now we're nowhere near that. Yeah, no, I think that was sort of one of my, one of my other questions. And, uh, before I get to, before I get to that though, there's, um, one aspect of our, uh, I guess our social nature is that it sort of turns us into, um, or not, not turns us into, but it, it require, as you mentioned, it requires us to, read and interpret, uh, signs and signs can be, as you mentioned, facial, facial signs. And, um, not everyone is good at these things. Not everyone is, is, um, good at interpreting, interpreting signs. And so I don't know if you can speak to this that much, but it, it does one's ability to, uh, infer correctly, uh, and interpreting correctly lead to uh, translate well to to success in in these uh, in these situations. I think that's a great question. So um, I, I think that there are lots of different ways, and I think lots of different things to think about in this context. Um, and so one one thing that's worthwhile noting, and that's and and that's I think very important to keep in mind, is a, that not every job is the same, and not every person is the same. And some people are really good to work the room they can just go around and read the room they know exactly what to say and how to say it and people feel comfortable and other people are just not they're not so social people um and um that's 
totally great. It turns out, actually, my, my job, philosophers are often ones that are not so great with other people and tend to be the ones that, that you don't want to invite to the cocktail party because they're going to stand in the corner and say weird things to people. And, and like that's, that's not so helpful. Um, and so that, one reason why that's sort of interesting is that I think it used to be a one-size-fits-all approach a little bit more where everyone, pre-pandemic, maybe everyone was meant to be kind of social. And one positive change that the, we're getting now is that people who were who felt that their, their, their strong suit wasn't in reading the room, but it was maybe in being on their own and figuring stuff out on their own and communicating quite directly and explicitly with over email, verbally or something like this, they might actually be able to do better now. They find their niche now because they can, they can, they can navigate this in, in this, in this new space better than they were able to navigate the old space. Um, I think that's absolutely true. Um, that it's, it's worthwhile to think about it. it you know, we, we might see interesting sort of um, some jobs do really well and some companies might do really well, all virtual, some, some less so. Um, and that, that's, that's the first thing in the, the, the second thing is, I think, um, worthwhile mentioning is people have noted, so particularly when it comes to um, people who, who's, who are differently abled than, than other people. So, for example, um, um, blindness. Uh, people who are, who are blind might have, uh, this, you know, it's, it poses all sorts of new challenges, this remote working where, uh, you know, um, you, you navigate, you, you, people, blind people had to navigate an environment largely built for, for non-blind people. Um, this new, maybe a new virtual setting can, can poses new challenges and maybe avoid some of the old challenges precisely because it, it makes new ways of communication possible. So there, there are all sorts of interesting things. Uh, to think about there. Um, the the last thing you sort of mentioned is, so can you, um, is it true <laughs> that social people do better um, in, in some form? Is it, I, I, that's a tricky question. I think partly it's tricky because it'll depend um, what kind of job you're looking at, what kind of social environment you're looking at. Um, but there is a long tradition in the sort of the evolutionary psychological sciences and evolutionary evolutionary influenced social sciences that suggest that yes, because of, because of the sort of weird social nature that humans are in, it tends to be an advantage for humans if they are able to navigate their social environment quite well. People who are not good in navigating social environment um, are at a disadvantage. That said, right, I think you have to be a little careful because if you, I know a lot of people that are not that great at navigating social environment, myself partly included, to be honest. Um, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, if, if there's a sense in which I am quite good at navigating a social environment, and some of these other people are too, and that is that I find, I, I know where I can be, where that's okay. Uh, you know, um, so maybe a sales job isn't a great job for me because you have to just sort of the, you'd be able to really feel the room and, and get, get us into, maybe that's not my strong suit. So I shouldn't be going into this. A career, um, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, as a philosopher might be more my thing where I can, can think about stuff on my own for long periods. I can self-motivate. I'm quite good at that. So I can, I can figure that out. So at least, I, at least I have that kind of ability to, to figure this out. So I think social ability comes in lots of different varieties and that's, that's, um, 
that's something to keep in mind here too. Yeah, I guess uh, one one area that that it seems because one one aspect that's or one thing that's always an aspect of of an office, I think no matter where or what uh, field it's in and uh, what sort of whether it's public or a private situation or um, is office politics. Office politics it seems to be like it, it's going to be always part part scenario and part of navigating office politics is picking up on these signs of who you can trust who you can't trust how you should interact with one person and not interact with another person so yeah i was i guess I, that's part that's part of what i was also imagining because i've been part of that part of that setting it's like it it helps being in the know in these in these situations and you can't really do that if you're always if you're if you are remote and you can't really be part of these conversations like the the water cooler conversations, those seem to help in that sense. Absolutely. And, and, and I, I want to note, so there's, there's, a, there's, again, there's sort of a positive and, and a negative side to, to things, right? So um, going back to your earlier point, like this, are there, are there, aren't there benefits from, from this shift to remote working? I think yes. Um, and one of these is that office politics let me just be clear, right? Office politics can really be bad. It can, it can really be extremely frustrating and can set people back. And often it's, it's the people that, that suffer most from, from office politics are the are ones that are sort of vulnerable for other reasons. Um, um, anyway, it's, uh, you know, it's not the white males that tend to suffer, uh, when it comes to sort of office politics and being sidelined because of office politics is all the non-white males, non-white, non-male, I guess. <laughs> um, and so you might think, hey, here's, the, here's a possible, I think, a real possible benefit uh, of this shift to remote work is that maybe it reduces this, the potential for the negative signs of office politics, where if you, if you go, go out with drinks with the boss, you know, a lot, and that really helps your career possibilities. If you have kids or you don't drink, or you, uh, you know, for religious reasons, uh, you, you know, Friday nights aren't great for you or Saturday nights aren't great for you or whatever. Um, uh, and you're sort of, ex- oh, and you're excluded from this conversation. You're excluded from, ah, oh, you just went there. You should have been there. You should have been there. Um, if you don't have that because nobody can go out, that might be beneficial because now people get a chance to get somewhere in their career that they didn't get before. And so that can be totally positive. And so there's absolutely, I think that, that that's one of these things that makes it kind of that that's a reason to embrace the working from home. The what I and um, and for example, the economists I think noted some of some of those things too. And so that's great. The downside of this is though that there's maybe the 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 other aspect of the water cooler conversation isn't just the office politics and like the gossiping and talking behind someone's back, but it's this kind of conversation where you say, Hey, I've been thinking about this saying, and you're like, what, what are you doing? You're like, I'm so frustrated and I can't trying to figure out this thing and I can't figure it out. And it's just so hard. And they say, Oh, that's too bad. I'm, I'm struggling with this other thing too. And I can't, and it's like, Oh, let's, what, what do you, and then you say something and I'm like, wait, actually, I, that's a great, I should, that, that's really helpful for what my thing is. And so here's, here's how I think about it. And then you're like, oh, actually I should think about it. And we wouldn't have done that if we hadn't stayed both drinking water and chatting about the, the weird, cool 
air conditioning thing happening and what noise the air conditioning makes that got us talking. And we wouldn't have started that Zoom conversation because we didn't know that we had something to, to tell each other. But because we're in the same physical space, we in, interact and learn about new things. That's the benefit that we might lose and that people don't want to lose, I think. One of the, uh, so a lot of, the, I think this analysis takes on the perspective of, uh, not necessarily the perspective of, but uh, focuses on uh, the workers and, or like, I guess the lower management workers. Um, and I wonder if, because uh, I, when I was part of a, uh, when I worked part-time in a sort of, uh, uh, at a firm or a telecommunications firm, there was this reluctance to uh by the by the upper management to have workers um like salespersons and so on and so forth working from home uh and part of it was i guess this this general distrust of uh that work would it get done um and so i wonder if that's explained in uh, in other ways by other evolutionary traits or if, if this if this is the same this might fall in the same sort of categories uh but one thing i was thinking of is uh one of the sort of evolutionary not stories, but explanations of, of a concept like justice is not wanting to be, have someone pull one over you to take advantage of you and to not let bygones be bygones and, and to make sure things are wrongs are corrected in some way. Uh, so I wonder if there's also that aspect in place here so that there might be this general reluctance to have things go remote because there is this sort of distrust or ensuring that have things in front of me to analyze rather than trusting that things are going to be done. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's another great point. I think so. Economists sometimes talk about a principal aging problem in this context, where there's where I, I'm I'm there's someone might be you might be the principal and say you uh, you do this job and, and I'm the agent and I have to sort of execute the kind of job that you give me, but you might not be fully able to uh, to control all the things that I do. And so then how can you ensure that I do the kind of job that you want me to do? Um, uh, you know, and, and, and how, and how would that work? Um, and uh, arguably, you know, in, in different forms that this kind of issue arises in lots of work, workplace scenarios. And I think the working from home, I think correctly, you point out, maybe make that problem in some context more difficult. Um, and it can raise further sort of justice concerns in, in the same sort of the office politics comes back here now in the other way, right? Um, where um, some people don't turn their computer off ever, work all the time now because they're from home. There's no more work and um, um, sort of private life distinction anymore. Uh, um, you know, the last thing you, you, you do is check your email and respond to emails before you fall asleep. First thing you do in the morning is check on your email and respond and you're on call all the time. And and people really struggle and other people kind of don't do anything and um, everyone gets the same promotion or some people get more of a promotion than other people, even though they don't, they don't seem to do anything. And then people get frustrated. It's like, I work a lot and, and I have like people can't show this. Um, and to be honest, I think that's the companies and people are looking for new ways to, uh, to figure out how to, navigate this terrain how to how to figure out what people do and how to give people a chance to turn off and also sort of say you know i, I don't want to check every email that you send i don't want to check that you do the kind of work that you claim you do i want to trust you about that um, but i also want to make sure that i'm fair to everyone and not just sort of say yeah i know you're you know you're a hard worker that's a, that's okay this other person i'm not sure about that so that that would be weird and so how do we do that 
I don't know if people have total answers to this, but I think it's actually it's it's one of another reason why I think and um, why ultimately after when maybe vaccines are in place and things like this get a little bit easier, people will want to come back to the same physical space work in the, in the environment. Just it's it's a way to to make sure that people check in every now and then and are not like kicking their feet some people are kicking their feet up and some people do all the work and you're like uh, what what's going on like let's let's all get together and just sort of make sure that we're all pulling the same direction yeah i agree uh from this the specific case of 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 work life have you have you considered other sort of areas of of at least that we've come across in the during the pandemic or behavior that, that we've come across during the pandemic that might be either explained or be, benefit from uh some infusion of, of, uh, evolutionary biology, biological insights. Um, um, so, um, one thing I've been looking at recently in my research, and this is really very, very recent is one of the things that the pandemic really, I think puts to the forest is economic life in general. Right. Um, What's so weird is that you, what makes this pandemic different, I think, from much else that's come before in human history is that it's this massive global turndown of the valve that drives economic cooperation. Um, so people are traders. We, we engage in trade and relations. I give you something, you give me something back, and humans have been doing this. And... Um, uh, for a long time. And so all of a sudden now with the pandemic, there's like this less of just commercial trading economic activity. And that's a weird thing to think about. Um, and it, one place where, where my research has been going recently is just to think about the reasons why humans are so focused on trade and economic relations in general. What, what makes it the case that humans are traders and that they're, they're focused on trade so much where's this going where what you know um and on on that level i've been i've been certainly thinking about that as well um uh, another place that's not directly focused maybe directly it's been not sparked by the pandemic but it's an interesting related issue i think i've been thinking about concerns um questions about curiosity and intellectual property rights so um, uh, there's a, there's one classic argument for why you need extensive patent regimes in lots of economies. And that has to do with the fact that people wouldn't be motivated to innovate and come up with new things if they didn't get sort of monopoly profits over the fruits of their labor. So that's why we have these, these long patents in the U.S. and lots of other countries have these big patents. And that extends to physical things and ideas and whatever you can have a patent on, loads of things. Um, uh, and but there's sort of there's one part of the argument for these patents is that that um, a key motivator of human innovation and curiosity innovation generally is the sense of a monetary gain. People wouldn't innovate as much if they didn't get the kind of monetary gain at the other end. And I think biologically, there are good reasons to think that that's just wrong. Um, humans, like many other organisms, particularly closely related organisms, other primates, we're actually inherently curious. We're actually inherently driven just to come up with new stuff and want to interested in, in how stuff works. And given this, I think you could, it's, there's, a, there's a chance that we could, we could rethink our intellectual property right regimes in this country and lots of other countries. And, 
are moving away from really extensive patents for that reason. And so that's, uh, that's been another thing I've been thinking about here where you can connect um, biology and archaeology and what we can learn about ancient human living and non-human animal living with something really different and concrete like patent rights. Yeah, no, I, I, that's that's interesting because that that's always yeah, as you mentioned, that's always sort of an argument by by politicians as to why we should have certain policies over over others being so uh, committing so uh, I guess aggressively or fully to something like free trade. I don't I guess something like free trade would just uh, be less inclined to honor patents. I guess for as long as as we do, um, that's something that would need some additional time to di- to discuss. I kind of want to leave off with, uh, I guess, what you think is the the final upshot of of the considerations that we've been having in the uh, topics that we've in the questions that we've been discussing today. So I think um, I think that sort of the final upshot is, and like lots of my work, is frustratingly um, two sided and sort of James faced <laughs> and ambiguous a little bit. So I think here's the first upshot. I think you can learn tremendous amount of things. I think that's the first thing I want to say. You can really learn a lot in the social sciences and the cognitive sciences and, and think about social phenomena on a very concrete scale, like working from home, more abstract things, uh, how, how economies are organized and the nature of corporations. You can, you can learn a lot by taking, by placing humans in the context of other biological systems, seeing humans as biological systems with a biological history and approaching human social living from the angle of social, biological, social living more generally. I think you can learn a whole lot this way. First take-home message. Second take-home message, the details are complex. It's This is not, you have to be really, really careful about exactly what the kind of conclusions are that you draw. You have to be really careful about how you go from the biology, what the biology is, A, and what B, you have to be really careful about what the, the phenomena and the social science are that you're looking at. And C, you have to be really careful about what the connections are in between these two things. I think problems in the past have, have arisen where people haven't, haven't really sorted through all these details and made kind of sloppy connections between some sloppy biology and some sloppy social science. And that's, that's tricky. I think there's tremendous potential here, but you have, to, you have to throw yourself into this and kind of take this seriously because otherwise you kind of get, get sloppy. Sloppiness. Yeah. <laughs> well, Armin, uh, thank you for for having this conversation with me and sort of sharing your considered analysis of of what life might be like after after lockdowns. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And with that, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Lawrence Talks. Mm-hmm.